I want to talk about hindsight today. It's the saying that you all know, hindsight is 2020. And in the case of Church of Jesus, the Church of Jesus Christ, we would change that a little bit. Hindsight is the year 2020. The year of the battle between the government and the church. And I say battle, not war, because 2020 was only the latest round. For example, in 2015, the Supreme Court declared that same-sex marriage is legal, even though God doesn't recognize that, directly contradicting the Word of God. And then in 2020, emboldened by the COVID-19 crisis, governments around the world endeavored to shut down the Church of Jesus Christ in the name of so-called public safety. And we saw, for the first time in history, what a worldwide agreement of totalitarianism looks like. We saw a sneak peek into the future world of an antichrist-ruled one-world government. 2020 was a year of more division in the Church of Jesus Christ than I've ever seen in my lifetime. It was a steep learning curve for all of us as we tried to grasp what was happening. Across the board, we believed what the government told us. We believed that every fifth person was going to drop dead. We believed that this was going to be the worst thing since the Spanish flu of 1918. But slowly over time, it became very clear to many that this was a frontal attack by Satan on the church. And to complicate matters, it was a multi-front attack. Because at the same time, as you recall, we had riots in the streets. We had critical race theory hitting us all at once. This was a planned attack. And church leadership teams around the world were thrown into battle. Not so much against the outside forces, but in the battle with one another. And the makeup of those leadership teams determined the outcomes in the sovereignty of God. For some, they enjoyed full agreement together, either on the side of bowing to Caesar and agreeing to capitulate as a church, or in agreement to press on and meet in obedience to Christ as the church of Christ, not allowing the government to determine the how, the when, and the where of how we worship God. For other churches, a man or, or two may be standing alone, usually And most often, in my experience, the teaching pastor of the church, and for many, this ended in disaster. Like one pastor who shared with me at Shepherd's Conference a week or so ago, that he stood up to publicly pray for Canadian pastor James Coates, who had just been sent to prison for meeting with his church. And when this pastor in Southern California stood up to pray for James Coates, the next day his elders fired him. Because they said, you prayed for a criminal who's breaking the law. So there were all kinds of versions of what happened on church leadership teams. For most, though, it was a time of navigating some murky waters and endeavoring to seek biblical clarity as quickly as possible. But no matter the flavor or the type of test, in all cases, it was a test of leadership of leadership at an extreme level. In the past two years, there have been more sermons preached on the church and on church leadership and on faithfulness and on courage than at any other time in church history. They're everywhere. 
All you have to do is Google 2020 sermons on Romans 13 and your computer will explode. Because that was a major issue. Now, in hindsight, looking back, we can see that the Lord was purifying his church. And he was forcing us to study ecclesiology as if our lives depend on it. And by now, numerous books about God and the government have been written, including our book, The Essential Church, several other very good ones as well. And so we look back with a a bit of a traumatized feel. At the same time, the results have been spectacular. Because the positive effect of that time of crisis, which undoubtedly will be repeated, was to open the eyes of the church that leadership matters. It matters. Because the churches that failed, failed because of leadership. The churches that succeeded and were faithful, succeeded and were faithful because of leadership. That faithfulness to Christ matters. That biblical fidelity versus human agendas matters. And so we're using this series to think about the church and and we're coming across leadership frequently in our time here to prepare for our move to White Lane. And apparently I can add four more sermons to this, this series. But what we're doing in here in 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6 is we're endeavoring to do our very best to receive a commendation from the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. And so we're calling this series, Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. And all we've been doing is from 1 Timothy 4 through 6 is building a list of the holy and obedient things that a faithful church does. And so today we come to the next obedient thing that the church is doing And that is evaluating the leaders. Evaluating the leaders. I didn't tell the leaders we were preaching this. They found out when you did in the bulletin. So it'll be a surprise for all of us. And trust me, this is an uncomfortable message for me to preach. Today we want to look at 1 Timothy 5. We'll look at verses 17 through 25. 17 through 25. And while today's message is about evaluating the leaders, the text really as you're going to see, has a double whammy. The double whammy is this. It's about evaluating the leaders and your response to leaders. It's about both. And so we're going to end up with three questions for leadership and two questions for you as church members. We'll sprinkle them uh, together. There'll be one for leadership, two for you, and then two more for leaders. So we'll read through the text and then we'll just take it kind of a phrase or a verse at a time. 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear." In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. 
So five evaluations. We're going to do three for the leaders, two for the church. We'll do one, two, and two, kind of like that. The first evaluation question, this is for the leaders. Very simply, are they hardworking? Are they hardworking? Again, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. We considered this verse and verse 18 a number of months ago when we were in 1 Timothy 3, and so we'll just do a bit of review here. First of all, it's very clear that elders rule the church. That's just what the text says. This isn't a dictatorial rule. This isn't the kind of rule that Peter calls domineering over those in your charge. But it is a rule, nonetheless, in which the elders have the spiritual authority to call for and even insist on obedience to the word. Uh, Titus 2.15 says that we're to do that. We're to insist. We're not to make suggestions to you. We're to give commands from Scripture and insist that you obey. So they rule the church. But we also see here that elders are worthy of what Paul calls double honor. Literally in Greek, twofold honor. This is the Greek word teme. It's a word for honor. It has a rich depth of meaning. First of all, it means what you think it means. It means an attitude of respect, of deference, of obedience. We get that. But teme also simply means money. It means financial remuneration. Teme is used this way elsewhere in the New Testament. And so we get the, the broad view that elders are worthy of double honor. They're worthy of double honor if they're doing an outstanding job, but that doesn't mean that all of them need or should receive financial remuneration. The beauty of this text is it's just vague enough to give a wide variety of applications as being entirely possible, so we have certain latitudes, we have certain freedoms. But then it gets more specific. Elders who labor at preaching and teaching are especially worthy of double honor. Especially, it's a word that means above all, most of all, to an unusual degree. And we're going to pause right here just for a moment. What Paul is doing here is he's placing a premium on hard work. He's placing a premium on the intentional labor for the church of Jesus Christ. When we think about 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, it's speaking of how the church is to treat their shepherds. And just in the space of two verses, Paul uses two different Greek words to speak of those who labor, those who work. And so I want to be very clear here in verse 17, there is a distinction, but the distinction is not the shepherds who don't work hard and the shepherds who do work hard. That is not the distinction that's there. All shepherds are to work hard. The distinction is that some literally devote their lives to the gospel. Those are the especially, those who labor in preaching and teaching, while others gain their income from other sources, but all are to be hardworking. All of them. Consider Paul's view of the ministry at the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 7. This is his view of himself. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This isn't Paul saying, boy, I can hardly wait. I just got a membership at the country club. I'm going to be playing golf five days a week. I'm almost there. He's saying, no, I'm going to be poured out. What does the elder in the church of Jesus Christ do to be hardworking? He keeps going until he can't go anymore. Now, as the church grows and becomes more widespread, a coordinated effort among shepherds is obviously necessary. 
But with leadership meetings or elder meetings or the, the pastor meetings, which happen in every church, there is a danger. It's a major danger. That danger is that those meetings become the definition of eldering. They become the definition of leadership. And a corporate model, a, a, a business model, now seeps into the church where leaders are making decisions in ivory towers and expecting other people to do the actual work. I am all in favor of all of us doing the work of the ministry, but not to the exclusion of leadership doing the work. In fact, I did a little study in the New Testament this week, and I, I, wondered, I wondered how many elders' meetings I could find in the epistles. You know how many I found? Zero. There aren't any. It's not to say they, ha- they don't have their place. There were a few meetings, and usually they were apostles, and it was big, important issues. It, it wasn't deciding whether we should have blue or white light in the church. Meetings are useful, and they have their place. But our leadership team here at Grace, we try to caution very hard against an ivory tower mentality that doesn't actually do the work of shepherding doesn't actually involve itself in the lives of people at an individual level. As a church member, you have every right to expect your leadership to be hard-working, to expend themselves for the gospel to the best of their ability. Honestly, what else is there to do in this life? If you're a leader in the church of Jesus Christ, what, what else are you aiming for? How can leaders ask you to do what they themselves will not do? Every leader should show evidence of hard work of what Paul calls in 1 Thessalonians 12, kapiao, copious labor. You should see it in the results of their various ministries. So the first question, are they hardworking? Are they hardworking? Second question, this is for you, but it's related to the leaders. Am I buying truth? Am I buying truth? And you wonder, where does that come from? Well, I'm borrowing that question from Proverbs 23, 23. Proverbs 23, 23 is very interesting. It says to buy truth and wisdom and instruction and understanding. What do you buy things with? With money. There's no other way around this. Because now, back in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 18, Paul is very clearly talking about money. There's not the, there's not the double cited a, a word to may where there's double honor that can mean honor and respect but also can mean money now it just goes straight to money and he gives an illustration from deuteronomy 25 verse 4 in verse 18 he says for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages clearly talking about money now again a little bit of review from our first timothy 3 series why this illustration is paul taking the verse out of context just to make his point? And why is he comparing the pastor to an ox? Should I be offended? Would be my question. In the ancient Near East, an ox was used as part of the harvest process, in this case, the treading of the grain. An ox or a pair of oxen could be used to drag a heavy threshing board around, and they would drag it behind them, and it started the process of separating the good grain from the husks of the grain, and in fact, in the context of, 20, of Deuteronomy 25.4, this is not a verse about being kind to your animals. It's not a verse about that. In fact, Martin Luther famously said that this verse can't be for the ox because the ox can't read. So it's not about the ox. <laughs> the context in the larger section of Deuteronomy 25 is not about how you treat animals. It's how you treat 
citizens. How you treat one another, especially in a justice situation. As a matter of fact, if this law was only for the owners of the ox, it wouldn't make sense. Because what do owners do with their animals? They feed them. They make sure they're okay. There's a built-in motivation to take care of your property so you're not going to starve the animal. If someone is using an ox to thresh his grain harvest and he's muzzled the ox so that it can't feed while it's threshing, what does that mean? It means he doesn't own the ox. In fact, not every farmer would necessarily own an ox, so it was common to borrow or to rent an ox from your neighbor. And the renter or the borrower of the ox, well, if he didn't want to lose any grain, he would muzzle the ox. And Deuteronomy 25 says, don't do this. Because you're treating your neighbor badly by mistreating his animal. And it's not just a commentary on how to treat the ox, it's how to treat your neighbor. But more to Paul's use of Deuteronomy 25.4, it's not only a commentary on justice, it's also a commentary on value. On value, an ox was of much more value than a few mouthfuls of grain. And so the person refusing to let the ox eat from the produce is devaluing the ox, which is not easily replaced, and instead being stingy about just a few mouthfuls of food. So it's a matter of justice and value. And I want you to stick those two terms in your head for a moment. Justice and value. And we'll come back to them in just a minute. It's unjust to the owner of the ox to be stingy in feeding the ox. And it's a matter of value that the ox is of much more value than the grain. So what's Paul's point here? What's his point in regard to the financial support of the vocational shepherds? Well, very simply, this is what's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. That if God is concerned about the justice and value of the ox helping with harvest, how much more is God going to be concerned about how the shepherds of the church of Jesus Christ are treated. For vocational shepherds, the ones who work hard at preaching and teaching, the ones who have expended their lives, the ones who have given up other career alternatives to provide for them as a matter of justice and value. Now, you might, you might think that I'm being very bold about this. At Grace Bible Church, there's not really much boldness here because it's very nice to be open about this here because our elders already understand this. You already understand this. We're moving to a new building because you understand this. But I am amazed how many churches and their leadership view paying the, the, the vocational shepherds as charity. That's a word I've heard used. Well, we're a charity organization, so we're giving to them. No, you're not. It's not charity. It's a matter of justice. It's a matter of value. In fact, I don't really have to tell you this. Because you attend here, I don't have to tell you, the life-changing impact of the Word of God makes you yearn to thank God in a tangible way. Can you imagine how glorious it would be to be able to write a letter and have it be sent to heaven? But you can't do that. So what do we do instead? You thank God by giving to the shepherds that feed you. That's how you thank the Lord. I want to address both the justice and value issues because this really cuts to the heart of a church's overall attitude toward their, their leadership. And I'm really grateful that I'm not having to preach to our church right now because you get this and you're demonstrating that with your actions. But some of you in years to come may be influential in giving understanding to this issue. Many of you hearing this 
Right now, you might be in this church later as elders or as deacons. You might be in a different church if the Lord takes you elsewhere. And many who are listening to this by live stream, you might be in a position to be influential about this. So I want you to know and get this. First, it's a matter of justice. It is absolutely just. You're receiving the life-giving preaching of the Word of God. And to not give to the support of this endeavor is unjust. It's like the man who rents an ox and starves it simply because he can. If you think that giving to the feeding of God's word is optional, then great, be consistent. Go to a California Pizza Kitchen, order four or five pizzas, and then walk out without paying and see what they do. They will have you arrested. Why? Because it's unjust. It's stealing. It's wrong. In the strictest sense, the vocational shepherd doesn't have a job. Did you know that I am unemployed? I don't have a job. This is not an exchange of services for a paycheck. That's not what the vocational shepherd does. It's a calling to which a man devotes his life in serving the Lord and the church provides for him to find that calling and to fulfill it. It's more of a sponsorship for a man to do the work of the ministry, both inside the walls of the church and serving the church universal. It is a patronage of sorts. And so it's a matter of justice. You would never go to a restaurant and steal food. And yet I have known of church members who attend for years and don't give a nickel. And they come and they they receive, they receive, they receive, but they won't give. That's unjust. But second, there's a matter of value. The matter of value, whether good or bad, I'm not sure yet which, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of church leadership teams on the issue of how you pay your pastors. And I'm stunned how often I hear leaders trying to get the most bang for their buck in their pastoral staff, arguing over a few thousand dollars here and there. I I think the most common thing I've heard lay leaders tell me is, well, he, meaning the pastor, just needs to have faith. No, no. The leadership of the church needs to have faith. That if they'll obey 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, then God will bless them. Here's where the value comes in. It takes years and years and years to develop just one preaching pastor who can handle the word of God with skill, with precision, with experience. And so when the church gets its hands on one or two or three, to try to do that as cheaply as possible makes no sense. And just to be clear... Our shepherds here are well provided for. This is not a a hope that there's a secret congregational meeting to raise money. That's not what we're doing. This is so you understand the issue. It is to value a few thousand dollars over and above the life-changing, cool, refreshing water of the word which glorifies Christ and sends our souls upward, doesn't it? It's a value. And in fact, your giving is first and foremost for the dissemination of the word of God. That's why we give. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. The greatest investment we as believers make in the church is to invest in her men, in her trained shepherds. And what does God do with a church that invests in the word, that buys truth, where the church has faith? We have an example in the context of investing heavily in Paul's ministry. Paul made a promise to the church at Philippi. He said in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
In fact, it's important to note that this concept of how the church supports the work of the gospel is so important that God inspired an entire book of the Bible on this subject, and that is Philippians. Philippians is Paul's thank you letter to the church. And what prompted this thank you letter? Well, at the end of Philippians, we find out, he says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. In other words, word got to them that no church was helping Paul and they said, that's not going to happen on our watch. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. He says in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He was the recipient of double honor as well. We've seen this over and over and over again in our church and it moves me. It moves me to think how you value the preached word of God. I know how you value the preached word of God because every time I buy groceries for my family, I know how you value the preached word of God. Every time I put gas in a car, which is a little bit of a tender topic right now for all of us, (laughs) but I'm thankful to have something to put gas in my car with. Because it says you value the word and you know the soul-changing impact of the Bible. Here's what I'm praying for for Grace Bible Church so we, we can be as effective as possible for the work of Christ. I'm praying for men. I'm praying for men. I'm praying for us to be able to make our pastoral intern over Spanish ministry a full-time pastor because Pastor Alex works his fingers to the bone already. I'm praying for us to have a pastor over all discipleship and counseling and to take our discipleship to a level that no local church in this area ever has. I'm praying for us to invest in our younger folks and to have shepherds that shepherd high school students and junior high students and children's ministry and whatever else the Lord will do. I have no problem praying for this because what did Jesus say to pray for? Pray for harvesters, pray for workers. So that's what we're praying for. And God has already been doing this. He's provided so many men in wonderful ways. He's provided for us in ways I never heard of. Like providing men who don't need an income. Those are the best of all. (laughs) When I first came to Grace Bible Church, the way we had a staff meeting was for me to look in the mirror and say hello. That was it. Now we have a table with seven men. Some full-time, some part-time. That doesn't even include our core of lay elders. doesn't include our, our deacons. When we get all of us together, we have to take up a good chunk of this room. That is God answering the prayer for harvesters and for workers. Amen. First question, are they hardworking? Second question, for you, am I buying truth? Third question, another one for you. Do I cultivate love and respect for the leaders? Do I cultivate love and respect for the leaders? There are jokes among pastors. And some of the jokes have to do with things you should never preach. Things that are too tender to preach. Things like prayer, because it makes you feel guilty. Evangelism, because it makes you feel guilty. Giving, because it makes you feel guilty. By the way, prayer, evangelism, and giving is the acronym PEG, so you feel pegged by it. But one of those is that you, you, don't, you don't preach on how members ought to treat their leaders because it's self-serving. 
But what I've discovered over the years, first of all, it's in the Bible, so we preach the word. I've discovered over the years that one of the most destructive things that a Christian can do to his own soul is to fail in his duty to the shepherds. It's bad for you. This failure of heart and words and actions leads to an inability to hear the word of God and to grow spiritually. Look with me at verse 19. Paul tells Timothy, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, we have to remember Timothy's situation here. He's been sent by Paul as the apostolic representative to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus wasn't just one big meeting like this. It was many, many little groups with elders meeting in these small groups all over, not only the city of Ephesus, which had a quarter million people, but all in the rural area around it. And you recall from chapter 1 that some of these elders, men like Alexander and Hymenaeus, they were functioning as false teachers. They were misleading people with false doctrine. But Paul is saying that in Timothy's work of filtering through these men and assigning new ones as elders, 1 Timothy 3 gives him that task, that he should not ever just believe one person's account of concern about a leader. That if one person comes and says, I have a concern about an elder, you don't listen to it. Why? Because that would lead to chaos in the church. Total chaos. In fact, Paul is following the Old Testament principle found in Deuteronomy 19.15 that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall the charge be established. Now, to be very clear, this is not an expectation of sinlessness. It is not an expectation of perfection. As we'll see in verse 20, the expectation of a leader is the same as any member. And that is that when sin is pointed out, there's correction and repentance that happens. Same as any Christian. Generally speaking, especially among vocational pastors, they're very hesitant to share any personal struggles they have. Why? Because they're guarding their paychecks. And so it becomes a very difficult situation. That's also not to say that your shepherds should just openly share all their sin difficulties, but neither should they be expected to live a false view of sinless perfection. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is in the previous chapter, In chapter 4, verse 15, to the pastors, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I'm so thankful for that, that we're growing in the Lord as well. I've been a pastor for some years and I've had the honor of counseling with many other pastors. And from verse 19, there's an undercurrent. There's a shadowed implication The obvious command here is to Timothy and by extension to any leadership team to be careful about listening to a singular negative viewpoint that that causes chaos in the church. But the undercurrent, the shadowed implication here is something that Paul knows all too well that in the church there are those willing to try to cause harm or pain in the the shepherds and they're willing to do this alone. Paul knew this. In 2 Corinthians 12, he tells the story of the Lord allowing in his life what he calls a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Some have speculated this is some sort of physical illness, which Paul probably did have, but that's not what he's talking about here. The word messenger always speaks of an entity. It can be an angel, it can be a human being, it can be an angel directed or directing a, a human being, a fallen angel directing a human being. 
And so there was a person in Paul's life antagonizing his ministry, and the Lord left him there. And Paul says why in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited. Most likely in response to a vision of heaven that Paul describes earlier in that same chapter. Now, to be very clear, just because in Paul's life God allowed the messenger of Satan to remain does not mean that someone should say, I think I'd like to be the messenger of Satan. (laughs) That's not your role. It's to your harm to do that. It's to your harm instead. I mentioned this text earlier, and I want to return to it. You don't have to to turn in your Bibles if you don't want to. It's, It's an easy text. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says, We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. The Apostle Paul is calling the church members to do three things for their shepherds. The first one is respect them. Respect those who labor among you. It's a word that literally means to know, to be familiar with, to know the shepherds. How how do you know me? You know me by my preaching. How do you know other shepherds? You know them because you seek them out. The second thing that members are called to do is to esteem them. To esteem them. It means to consider them worthy of respect because of their position. And in fact, to esteem them very highly. It's a word that means super abundantly, quite beyond all nature, beyond measure, to a great degree. And why? Because of their work. Not because they always please you. Not because of their winning personality or charm or or terrific good looks. Because they always do everything right. None of that. But because of their work. And so members are called to respect. They're called to esteem. And they're called to be peaceful. That call to peace is in the context of the shepherd and sheep relationship. It helps the shepherds do the work of the ministry when the sheep are at peace with one another and when the sheep are at peace with the shepherds. I could easily preach to do this for the sake of the shepherds and that would be a legitimate application. But I think the higher, the more lofty application is to do this for your own sake. To do it for your sake. You remember Hebrews 13, 17. And and it sounds like it's all about what you ought to do, but it really ends with what you get. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Here's what you get, for that would be of no advantage to you. Did you catch that? There is zero advantage to you to not respect, to not love the shepherds of the church. It's zero benefit. It's a trap. It is absolutely a trap. I have never had one person come to me and say, you know, I just wanted you to know that for the past three or four years, I, I pretty much don't like you anymore and I don't listen to anything you have to say and, and it really is just so elevating my love for Christ. Nobody ever says that. It's a trap. And by the way, it could get you in hot water with the Lord. That's a negative benefit. If you know any of your shepherds well, you know our strengths and you know we have weaknesses. The love and respect, if you know this from 1 Thessalonians 5, is not because of youthful energy or sparkling public personas or stunning intellect. It's because of their work. Because they love the sheep and they expend their lives for the sake of the sheep. 
I told this story once before, and I've gotten some feedback from it since. And so I'm going to add to it. A while back, a listener to our sermons who lives in another state sent me an email. He was complaining about the leadership of their local church. This and that, not measuring up to some man-made standards and preferences. And and the listener had asked me a sobering question. It's sobering because whatever I said is what they were going to do. Should we leave the church? And so what I walked through with them was that the church is doctrinally sound, so there's no theological reason to part ways. The leadership wasn't in gross, unrepentant sin, as we see in verse 20 here, so there was no moral reason to part ways. And so since he was asking for my counsel, I suggested to him that he make it his family's mission to tangibly love the leadership, that that becomes his ministry, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. So they began to find ways to try to be loving, starting with making a family rule of no more complaining about church leaders at the dinner table, and so on, and including other ways to demonstrate love. And he reported now that not only are they content and joyful in their church, but you ready for this? The pastor is preaching better. (laughs) No, he's not. (laughs) You're just open to listening better because you love him. And you love your shepherds, and so you receive from them. It is so good for you to do this. Are they hardworking? Am I buying truth? Do I cultivate love and respect for the leaders? There's a fourth question. Back to the leadership now. Do they set an example as growing believers? Do they set an example as growing believers? Verse 20. As for those, speaking of elders, who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Those who persist in sin, this is speaking specifically of shepherds in the church and in the case of the church of Ephesus, in all likelihood the main sin that's spoken of is what was happening with some of the teachers in the church. You recall back in 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. This is Paul's charge to Timothy, so that you may charge certain persons to not teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What is the stewardship from God? Preach the word and the word only. All leaders can and should be learning and growing, even to the point of altering positions on certain secondary issues as more study and experience is gained. Again, I fall back on 1 Timothy 4.15. Let all see your progress. And when a leader is confronted by multiple people pointing out that a teaching or a belief is not in line with Orthodox Christianity and the elevation of the Word of God above all other things, there ought to be change, there ought to be correction, there ought to be growth, that's reasonable. But if the teacher, if the elder refuses to back down on an unsupportable and unbiblical faulty teaching, he is to be exposed to the whole church. So, what is the reason? Paul says, so that the rest may stand in fear. Traditionally, this is interpreted as the rest of the elders. Grammatically speaking, I would take this as the rest of the church. 
It's not just the rest of the elders. The rest acts as sort of an impersonal pronoun. What's the last antecedent, the last, uh, the last thing to come before it? In the presence of all, all the church. We understand that there are variations of views in different areas of theology, all under the umbrella of Orthodox Christianity. We get that. But while t- what Timothy is to address here basically boils down to the slippery slope of the misuse of Scripture to promote preconceived ideas, promote preconceived notions. That's why Paul said in chapter 1 that the Old Testament law is good if you know how to use it. And how was Timothy to make these judgments, verse 21, without partiality, without prejudging, remembering that God is watching and that Christ is watching and the angels are watching. In other words, in the church, there are no good old boy networks. No consideration that this particular elder is loud and pushy. No consideration that this particular elder gives a lot of money. No, no consideration that this particular elder has this or that that we should overlook. But that's the negative clear command to publicly rebuke those who persist in sin. The positive implication, though, is that a godly man may be correctable. At some level, and he should respond well. I'd like to talk about that for a moment. You want leaders in the church who are eager to learn, eager to grow, eager to pursue holiness and righteousness as a lifetime endeavor. Listen, being given the title of pastor or elder doesn't somehow indicate total, complete sanctification. It doesn't. It ought to be indicative of someone who is just as enthusiastic to hear and apply the word of God as he hopes the rest of the church is. There's a very real danger for leaders, and that is the stoppage of spiritual growth and progress because they got a title. This can begin to seep in very subtly. It can seep in with a decreasing hunger for the preached word of God. And that the man who five years ago was in the church every time the doors were open and hungry for the word as an elder, or as a leader, you barely see him. The man who has a growing view of himself as different than the rest of the church. A, a flatness in his own relationship with Christ that when you ask him, how's your relationship with Christ? He begins reverting back to things he learned 20 years ago. An unwillingness or an inability to talk about his own growth in the Lord. I'm going to put out a challenge here to all of our leaders. You, as a church member, should be able to ask any elder, any one of our pastors, any of our deacons, this question, how have you been growing in Christ-likeness lately? How have you been growing? How have you been trying to be more Christ-like? What part of the Word of God is really grabbing you right now? What sermons have you been listening to to get a hold of your own sanctification? What sin in your life are you trying to conquer right now? You should be able to ask those questions. How have you been growing in Christ's likeness? One of the biggest spiritual dangers for full-time shepherds such as myself is mistaking the work of the ministry for the work of sanctification. Now, no doubt, the ministry will sanctify. It does have that impact. But God has a work to do in me God has a work to do in all of our shepherds, not just as shepherds, but as sheep. Because we were sheep long before we were shepherds, and I'll be a sheep long after I'm done being a shepherd. Could I ask you to pray for your leaders to grow in the knowledge and grace of Christ? 
Pray that we stay humble. Pray for your leaders to love the preached word, to never grow tired of the, truth, tired of the truths of our faith. Pray for the prayer lives of your leaders. Pray for the Christ-likeness of your leaders. I ran into a lay elder at a Shepherd's Conference. He's been in the same church for 40 years. He's been an elder for 30. And he said, you've got to hear this sermon my pastor just preached. Here's the link to it. And then he said, now here's a link to this one. Hey, you need to hear this one too. And it, it struck me. This man's been sitting under the same pastor for four decades. And he's just as excited about the preached word as he was four decades ago. Those are the leaders you want. Amen? One more question about leadership. It's very similar, but this one gets really to the crux of the matter. It gets very serious. Here's the fifth question. Do they purify or putrefy the church? Do they purify or putrefy the church? This is similar to the fourth question, but Paul gets even more intense. Verse 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, let's just walk through this. Verse 22 is not complicated. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. It, yes, chapter 3, verse 1 says that an elder is a fine work to do. That's good. But Paul says, don't be too quick on, about this. The laying on of hands, it speaks of commissioning. It speaks of ordaining the leaders in the church as under shepherds. And he warns Timothy that if he's aware of an issue with a potential leader and he, and he still puts him in leadership, then Timothy has taken part in that sin. No good old boy networks. It might be an issue that Timothy says, I'm sorry, you need to do something different in the church. Or it might be one he says, work on this. We'll revisit eldership in a few years. There's no hurry. They're called elders, not youngers. <laughs> and in fact, Paul gives two reasons to take your time. The first reason in verse 24, you need time to know a man because some men expose their sin quickly meaning sins which would disqualify them from ministry, and others expose their sin slowly. It doesn't come out for a while. The lesson, get to know potential leaders at a high level. But the second reason Paul says to take time is kind of the flip side of this coin. By giving time in the process, not only do you know, verse 25, the obvious good works of this man, but you begin to discover the hidden good works which eventually come out which is very good because that confirms to you that you've got the right man going to leadership because he served inconspicuously for a long time. And when the church installs godly men who are humble, faithful, teachable, who love the church, who have shepherds' hearts, who search the scriptures for answers, a man who sets an example with his marriage and with his family, this has a wonderful, purifying effect on the church. Why? Because members follow the example. I don't care about having a bunch of men who are expert sermon givers. I care about having a bunch of men that any of you can say, I want my life to be like his. Examples. And conversely, 
when the church endorses leadership with a consistent record of recalcitrant sin and obstinate lack of growth and inability to shepherd, it putrefies the church. It damages the church. It brings poison into the church. In fact, Paul has just told Timothy to keep himself pure at the end of verse 22, to not participate in the sins of unqualified leaders by endorsing unfit leadership. And all of a sudden, this little verse parachutes in and it looks like, what on earth is this doing here? Verse 23, and your Bibles probably have it in parentheses. No longer drink only water, but, only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy had chosen a lifestyle of total abstinence from alcoholic beverages of every kind. Most likely that was to not establish any sort of precedent for enjoying a liberty that someone else might find destructive. This is clearly in the spirit of Romans 14, 13 through 23, 1 Corinthians 8, 12 and 13, which warns us not to harm the conscience of a brother in Christ by taking a liberty that they don't feel able to take. On the other hand, you also had in the church at Ephesus false teachers, and one of the things they were teaching was what we identified as asceticism. False standards of righteousness by denying yourself the basic parts of life. And we saw this in chapter 4, verse 1, just very briefly, those, verse 3, uh, rather, who forbid marriage require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Paul has just told Timothy in the end of verse 22, keep yourself pure, but lest Timothy think that this is some sort of legalistic, ascetic lifestyle, he reminds him to take a little wine for his stomach ailments. Now, this is not a carte blanche uh, excuse for freedom of all kind. This is not say, you saying, well, Timothy drinks, I think I'm going to drink. The wine in the first century was considerably weaker than modern wine. It was diluted with water and it was used as a purifying agent for polluted water. Because if you drank polluted water, it gave you stomach problems like dysentery and horrible things could happen to you. But just putting a little bit of wine into a, a big container of water purified it. The wine of today's world would be considered what the Bible calls strong drink. It was to be avoided. And so Paul is giving Timothy some common sense fatherly advice to not fall into a standard of a false standard of purity, and use a little wine as medicine. So what do we learn here? Well, we learn, first of all, that Timothy had frequent health issues related to his stomach. Now, why, why is Paul suddenly giving medical advice? Well, who travels with Paul? Dr. Luke. And so Luke very likely was part of this. Now, I've done a bit of reading on this. Because I, I'm just not satisfied with the usual explanation. The usual explanation is that this is here because of the keep yourself pure phrase right beforehand. That Paul is saying, this doesn't mean to not use a common sense measure for your stomach ailments. That makes total sense and that's a nice fatherly touch. But in some of my study, I found precious little emphasis on the fact that Timothy is having stomach problems and why is it mentioned here? God never parachutes verses in for no reason. This is not the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit scratching their heads going, I don't know where to put this verse. Let's just stick it in right here. I want to suggest a solution to this. Paul is an apostle. 
He is one who has healed many people with apostolic power. His apostolic power was such that people who had his garment go across them were healed. And while we have good reason to believe that this aspect of apostleship was declining as the scriptures were completed, the New Testament was completed, nevertheless, why didn't Paul merely say, I know about your stomach problems and I have prayed for your healing. And as you read this, you will be healed. Why didn't he just do that? We have reason to believe Paul had that power. And why does Paul put this little note literally in the middle of his admonition to Timothy that Timothy is responsible for the quality of the leadership in the church? Why is it right here? Timothy was to get bad elders out. We saw that earlier in the book. He was to put qualified elders in, but not too quickly. Don't put the wrong ones in or else you share in their sin. And right afterwards, some potential elders won't show their real colors as being unqualified for a long time. So really, really don't do that. In other words, Timothy was given the task of intentionally shaking things up at the foundational level of a very large church. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that endeared him to the entire church? No way. Not a chance. He had to take stands guaranteed to make some angry who were loyal to certain elders. The church was in conflict and Paul told Timothy and you're going to start it but don't mess up. I would contend that Timothy was in a crucible. He was in a cauldron, a boiling pot of controversy with a responsibility that in his own power he could not possibly accomplish. Timothy needed to be completely reliant on the Lord and how does God make his leaders reliant on the Lord? How does he ensure their dependence on him and on heavenly power? He makes them suffer and he brings suffering to them. Who is telling this to Timothy? The same one who said that the Lord allowed a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to keep me from being conceited. Who better to understand this than Paul? I believe it is a faulty assumption to assume that this verse is just parachuted in here, that the issue is the wine, the issue is keeping yourself pure. That's not the issue. The issue is that Timothy is in a boiling pot, in a cauldron, in a crucible of church conflict in which he is responsible to purify the church. That would give anybody stomach problems. In the 4th century in Constantinople, the famous preacher John Chrysostom It's kind of a nickname. It just means the golden-tongued one because of his reputation as a glorious preacher. He preached this. Quote, But why did not Paul restore strength to his stomach? Not because he could not, for he whose garment had raised the dead was clearly able to do this too, but because he had a design of importance in withholding such aid. What then was his purpose? That even now... If we see great and virtuous men afflicted with infirmities, we may not be offended, for this was a profitable visitation. If indeed to Paul himself a messenger of Satan was sent, that he should not be exalted above measure, much more might it be so with Timothy. How important is it to properly evaluate leadership? It's so important that it gave Timothy stomach aches. Is that important? So important that ordaining the wrong leader could fall partly on Timothy's conscience and responsibility. But when the leadership of the church seeks humility, seeks Christ-likeness, when as you get to know them, you see this is a man who walks with God, 
This is a man who loves Christ and not himself. This is a man who would love to say what John the Baptist said, that Christ must become more and I must become less. This is a man who is a chief servant, a chief slave. And when there's a love relationship with the truth of God's word, a heart of protection, a heart of provision, providing truth to the precious sheep of God's flock, a heart of loving the sheep, I always hope that you get two things when I preach. I hope you get the truth and I hope you get that I I preach out of love. I hope that comes out. What a delightful, what a joyful time we have with one another, don't we? You need godly, humble, and loving shepherds to feed you the word of God and shepherd your souls. And the shepherds need you. Your love, your affection, the sense of family that occurs in the body of Christ as we're all trying to be faithful together. What lessons have we learned from 2020? What hindsight do we have having seen the church worldwide engaged in a crisis of leadership? The same lessons that have been in the Word of God all along. Do you know what 2020 was? It was a spanking to the church to open their Bibles and to the leaders to quit messing around with idiotic things and start going to the Word of God and shepherding the flock of God. We've heard this story all along. We've heard this story, the Shepherds Conference. Here's in a nutshell what God did with 2020. He took the unfaithful churches and he emptied them and he brought them to the faithful churches. That's it. So what do we have now? We have a strengthened church. It is our duty to abide by what God says about leaders, to be a church which pleases our dear Savior. Why? Because we've been purchased. 125 times in the New Testament, you were called a slave. We're purchased. And so we obey. Amen? We'll obey together all the way to heaven. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, for the clarity of your word. You have driven us back to it as a church universal in the world. How many glorious sermons being preached in 1 Timothy, even this day, Surely countless tens of thousands. How many leadership teams determined to stop trying to be popular and start trying to be faithful? How many leadership teams and pastors and elders driven from their ivory tower to their knees where they ought to be? Lord, I know this is asking a lot, but our prayer, our little group here that meets on Young Street and sometime in June on White Lane. We would like to ask you that we are faithful until Christ's return. We would like to ask you that we maintain and elevate the preeminence of the Word of God and the preeminence of the God of the Word and that we humbly bend the knee to your standards. We would ask you, Lord, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth as a beacon, as a clarion call from this people, and that we would see many, many saved. And that at the end of all things, we would receive a commendation from Christ, our Savior. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.